0: This is Ethics Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. Ethics Bites is a series of
1: interviews on applied ethics produced in association with The Open University. For more information about Ethics Bites and about The Open University, go to open2.net.
0: That'll be a short discussion then. Somebody commented when told we were doing a podcast on business and ethics. In fact, there is a strange shortage of philosophical literature on business ethics. In contrast, there's a library of books on medical ethics. One puzzle in business ethics is how we should view a business decision. Should we blame a bad decision, say, on a particular individual or set of individuals? Or can sense be made, as the philosopher Philip Pettit suggests, of the responsibility being the organisations as a whole? And what are we to make of corporate social responsibility, all the vogue now? Do businesses really have an obligation, as opposed to a profit motive, to care about the environment, the communities in which they operate and so on? Questions to which Alex Oliver should know the answers. He runs
1: the Forum for Philosophy in Business at Cambridge University. Alex Oliver, welcome to Ethics Bites. Hello, Nigel. Now, the topic we're going to focus on today is Corporations and Responsibility. Philosophers aren't typically that interested in lampposts or cars. Why should they be interested in corporations?
2: Well, I think they should be interested in corporations because they throw up all sorts of philosophical puzzles and conundrums. What kinds of properties do corporations have? How are these corporations related to the individual human beings that make them up?
1: But there are all kinds of groups of people that philosophers don't get excited about. A queue waiting to get a coffee in Starbucks. Who cares about that? Why should they be so focused on corporations?
2: I don't think they should just be focused on corporations. I think they should be focused on groups which are organised to pursue some purpose. It's those kinds of groups which really raise the interesting philosophical puzzles. Trades unions, churches, universities, the mafia, as well as corporations.
1: So what's special about these kinds of organisations which have particular aims and shared purposes and possibilities to act?
2: What's special about them? Well, it starts with metaphysics, really. One wants to ask, where are they, for example? Where are they located? And, of course, it's very easy to locate a very small organisation, but when one thinks of Shell or the Mafia, it's very hard to give them a location as it would be to just point to the lamppost, and that brings up another point. You can't generally smell them or feel them. They don't seem to be observable in the way that a table or a lamppost is. You can see individual members of an organisation, but can't actually see the organisation.
1: Setting aside the Mafia, because there are special problems there about identifying who's a member. But I can think of Shell. You could find business addresses. You can find the names of employees. I don't follow why there's a problem about identifying where the corporation is there. It's the sum of those addresses, people, business sites.
2: Well, which people? Which people are the appropriate members of the corporation? How far does the membership extend? Is it just the board of directors? Is it the entire workforce? Is it the workforce plus those they impact on?
1: And I suppose the shareholders as well could conceivably be thought of as part of an organisation like that. Absolutely, they're the owners. If there is this difficulty of actually identifying a location of a corporation, are they more like numbers in that respect? The number three, where is that? It's not the number written on a page, it's an abstract idea.
2: Well, it's an abstract object, has no spatio-temporal location, but it has no causes and has no effects either. A number, an abstract object, and of course corporations, organised groups pursuing a common purpose, certainly do have effects.
1: So that ties the metaphysical question of what kind of a thing a corporation is into something which might be seen as an analogy. They're a bit like minds in some respects. My thoughts can lead to my actions, my desires, and so on. Is that a fair analogy to draw?
2: Well, it's a difficult question. They cause things, but do they do things? Are some of the things that they cause actually results of their actions? And I believe they are. I believe there's a good sense in which organisations can act, and they can act for reasons.
1: Well, is that a metaphor? Are they really acting in the way that a human being acts?
2: Some people think so. So Anthony Quinton, for example, takes the talk of mental states of organisations to be plainly metaphorical. The literal talk to replace it is to be talk of the mental states of individual members of an organisation.
1: But surely that idea isn't so absurd. How can a group of individuals have some kind of composite mental state like that? The basic unit of action is an individual human being. So there's a sense in which a chief executive can act and get people to act because he or she is very powerful, but that's not a corporation acting.
2: That's true. There are actions on the part of individuals, but I think there's also a sense in which they add up to actions on the part of corporations. And I think a very good way of examining this is to think about some considerations that Philip Pettit has brought forward in this debate to argue that, in fact, the mentality of certain kinds of organisation transcends the mentality of the individual members.
1: So just to get that straight, Pettit is saying it's not a metaphor that actually these organisations think.
2: That's right. He says they have minds of their own.
1: That's highly counterintuitive, isn't it? (laughs)
2: Perhaps, but actually he brings forth very powerful considerations. He considers decision-making within organisations, and it's a good idea to actually proceed by a little dummy example at this point. Suppose some committee within an organisation is charged with deciding about some matter C, C for the conclusion, and suppose also that all are agreed that if condition A holds and condition B holds, then C follows. Then one way for this committee to make its decision, is to let the individual members vote on A and to let them vote on B. And if there's a majority in favour of A and a majority in favour of B, then C follows. The group makes up its mind. C is the case. So far, so good. But it's very easy, actually, to set up the situation so that the majority in favour of A is a different majority from that in favour of B, and those majorities themselves, their overlap, their intersection, is not itself a majority. And in such circumstances, if we asked the members of the committee to each make up their minds individually about C, in fact, there would not be a majority in favour of C, the conclusion. And if that's the case, then talk of an organisation's judgments reached on the basis of such decisions can't be explained away as a mere metaphor to be replaced by literal talk of what all or many or most of the individual members would judge
1: that's quite complicated in abstracts. I wonder if you could give a specific example to illustrate it.
2: Yeah, let's take a three-person appointments committee for an academic job. You're deciding whether to appoint a particular person, so that's the conclusion. And let's suppose just two conditions must be met. They must be competent to teach ethics and they must have an international reputation for research. So you can imagine the different people on that committee going different ways, can't you, on those two conditions? One may say, oh, yes, competent to teach ethics, and another may say, well, no, not at all. So you can imagine when you take the votes, there'll be a majority, say but not unanimity in favour of of this person actually being competent to teach ethics, a different majority in favour of them having an international reputation. And if you let the decision then be forced by the fact that there are majorities on these two conditions, then you'd actually appoint the person. But you could imagine taking the decision in a different way, actually asking each member to vote on whether they would appoint. And it may well be that two out of the three would say no.
1: So that actually illustrates quite nicely that a group of people can really have a mind of its own that's different from the minds of the individuals who make up that group.
2: I think it's a very powerful argument in favour of that, but I think one's got to hesitate at this point and say, what kind of mind? It's actually not the sort of mind that an individual human being has. They may well have states which you could call beliefs and you could call desires, but they don't, for example, have their own faculties of perception, these organisations. They don't itch, they don't sleep, and so on.
1: Obviously, a group of people can bring things about, so they've got some kind of causal responsibility for what happens. But do they have moral responsibility?
2: Well, I think you've got to be very careful with the notion of responsibility. There are several ideas in play. You've mentioned two. I think, as I've said, that an organisation can act and have reasons for acting. So I do think, in fact, that they can be certainly causally responsible for some of the things they do. I think they can be psychologically responsible in the sense that they are in control of what they're doing and they understand what they're doing. They can certainly be legally responsible. They can have legal duties. The question of moral responsibility is trickier and more controversial, You hear about the ideas of moral agency, moral personhood and moral responsibility and they all go together in some kind of package. Now some people will say that it's impossible to hold a corporation responsible in a moral sense because they don't have the requisite emotions. They can't really understand from the inside moral concerns. But I actually don't think that's required. I think they can be sensitive to those kinds of considerations, even if they don't actually feel the emotions. And I also think it makes sense to praise and blame them in order to change their behaviour.
1: So you believe that a corporation or a group of people can be together morally responsible for something, and that's not a metaphor
2: That's right. It, the corporation, can be morally responsible. It can be held responsible for what it's done. It can be praised and blamed. It's accountable for what it's done. It's answerable.
1: We've got the idea, then, that a group of people can together be morally responsible In the area of business, how does this connect with the idea of the social responsibility of organisations?
2: So you're talking about corporate social responsibility, CSR as it's known. The big buzzword, isn't it? They talk all the time about having responsibilities for an absolute wide range of activities, ranging from protecting the environment, looking after animals, helping local schools and so on.
1: And yet Milton Friedman famously said, the social responsibility of business is to increase profit.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, he was thinking of a particular kind of business, the for-profit business, not set up for any charitable purpose, but really for promoting the interests of its shareholders. The idea is that you have an organisation which has a single purpose and the executives' responsibilities within such an organisation are, in fact, to serve the needs of the shareholder and those will, of course, will be to maximise return.
1: An exclusive concern with profit, though, seems antithetical to ethics. It doesn't sound like social responsibility to me.
2: Well, he distinguished two kinds of social responsibility. What you might call the pure kind is where the executive is actually running against the desires of the shareholder, spending their money in ways in which they don't agree. And for that kind of social responsibility, he condemned it as a kind of taxation without proper democratic procedures in place.
1: Well, what's the second kind then?
2: Oh, the second kind you might call impure as opposed to pure. This is by far the most popular kind of CSR as it's conducted now, where the business case is made for doing good. So ultimately you're doing good for profit's sake. Now for Friedman, he called this hypocritical window dressing. He thought that impure CSR was often conducted in what you might call a fraudulent way, that the motive for doing good was being misrepresented.
1: So I could imagine somebody selling coffee going out of their way to get the fair trade label because they know it's good for business. Now that seems hypocritical. Is there anything wrong with that, though?
2: Friedman called it hypocritical, and there was a strong sense in which he was condemning it by using those words. And if you think about an individual human being, if you were to ask, well, why is it that you're helping the old lady over the street? And the person responded, well, I'm doing it to impress the woman in the coffee shop who's watching me. You'd be rather upset at that point. We don't take kindly to people who are concerned with doing good on the basis of ultimately of improving their
1: reputation. On the other hand, the old lady would still get across the road, and in the coffee case, the coffee would be produced under fairer conditions.
2: Absolutely, and this raises a very interesting question here. Whether it's necessary to misrepresent a corporation's motives. Corporations have to represent their motives to all sorts of constituencies. When they're talking to the investment analyst, they certainly won't stress their altruistic motives. They'll be very much talking the business case. But when they're representing themselves to a wider public, potential and actual consumers, they may well be stressing altruistic motives and not mentioning the business case. So now why is it that they have to shift
1: Well, that sounds quite Machiavellian to me, the idea that you manipulate appearances to get a certain kind of end result, which is you're approved of from outside. Is that really an, an ethical position? This is the really interesting
2: question for me about corporate social responsibility. It's about presentation and the ethics of spin. Why shouldn't we as the general public be impressed by what a company's doing even if it's from the motive of ultimately maximising shareholder return. After all they're doing good, why should we care about why they're doing it? This may be one area where judgement about human beings and judgement about corporations differs or should differ.
1: That's interesting, so you might have a special notion of corporate responsibility that doesn't put such stringent obligations on the morally acting corporation as it would on an individual
2: That's right. One would ignore motivation and say it's only to be expected that they're actually interested in the business case. What else would they really be interested in? But on the other hand, look at all the good work that's following from that. Hooray.
1: Is it possible then to have a business which has a genuinely moral motivation in the sense that it's not just out for profit? Would it still be a business?
2: There are plenty of corporations that say that they're out to do something else than just maximise shareholder return. So a good example would be Divine Chocolate on their homepage. They say that their overall strategic aim is to improve the livelihood of smallholder cocoa producers in West Africa.
1: Is that then a paradigm of how a business should embrace its social responsibilities or is it beyond the call of duty as it were?
2: Well, I think it's up to the owners of the business to decide how they want to run their business. Some will have purposes that go beyond the profit motive, some won't. And I don't think one should downplay the profit motive. Making money is, in the end, good for society.
1: In a business which is set up purely for generating profit for shareholders, those who decide to invest in socially concerned projects might be seen to be doing something that is actually wrong.
2: As a human being, you may well want to say that they're a good person, but qua Executive, their chief responsibility is to satisfy the desires of the owners of their corporation.
1: I can imagine a cynical business person thinking, well, philosophers can't teach me anything. They're not experienced in business. They live in their ivory towns. What do they know about the ways of the world? Is there anything you think that people in business can genuinely learn from philosophy?
2: Well, I know from experience that they can. What a business person can learn from a philosopher is the need to be able to explain and justify what it is that their particular corporation is doing. What are the motives? There's a lot of confusion, I think. There's a lot of
0: misrepresentation. Alex Oliver, thank you very much. Thank you. Ethics Bites was produced in association with The Open University. You can listen to more Ethics Bites on open2.net, where you'll also find supporting material. Or you can visit www.philosophybites.com to hear more philosophy podcasts.